the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Jesus, seven letters in the book of Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor, address the attitudes that affect the church in every age to the end of time. In fact, the seven churches represent seven attitude epics that reach from apostolic days through the Middle Ages to the very end of time. That's Pastor Michael Oxentenko, and this is Reaching Your Heart, the Church of Ephesus and the Call to Love. A part of the Revelation series is today's Reaching Your Heart with Pastor Mike. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, please call us today at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Stay tuned to the end of today's broadcast. I'll have information on how you can attend the worship service in person if you would like. You can also attend anytime online at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Let's continue now with our Revelation series and begin our message entitled The Church of Ephesus and the Call to Love. Here is our pastor teacher, Michael Oxentenko. Dear Father, we're grateful for the cross of Christ. We're grateful that in Jesus there's life. The life we need is the life that you have given in him. And Father, I just pray today that as we study the word of God, may it not be just some cold analysis of scripture, some intellectual interaction, some chore of reasoning. May it be what it should be, a pursuit of the one who died for us. Father, thank you that the truth is about a person, ultimately. In Jesus' name, amen. His friend was struck, and people just passed by as if nothing mattered. I mean, that was an awful thing. His friend's body lay in the streets as, as, as a motorist, whizzed by, one after the other. They didn't even care that his body was in the street. His friend was hit in broad daylight by a hit-and-run driver, didn't care to stop for him. They just didn't care. And no one else cared enough to stop to pull his friend out of the road. So what does a friend do? A friend takes his place next to a friend. And so his friend took his place beside his fallen comrade to guard his body until someone had enough sense to pull it out of the road. A black Labrador retriever made national news this week because it was unwilling to leave the side of a fallen canine friend. How many of you saw that picture on the news? Amazing. Now, whatever you think of dogs, and some people say, well, I hate dogs. Whatever you think of dogs, you have to admit that in this situation, this dog has something to say to the world, does it not? This dog can teach us what it means to love because he was unwilling to leave his friend behind. That black Labrador retriever is a picture that the world needs to see today. It stands beside other pictures this week, a picture of a U.S. soldier and others holding as trophies the mutilated body parts of suicide bombers. Awful picture. A picture of a Secret Service agent, his Colombian consort. There he was, running from the truth, running from the fact he'd let the President of the United States down. 
Awful picture. But the most horrific picture was the testimony of the mass murder of Norway, Anders Bethring Breivik, I think I said it right, giving testimony describing the day he personally gunned down and killed 69 people. Horrific day in world history. He testified that he was not a racist, but a sympathetic person who really does care about people. And so he even cried as he expressed his appreciation and love for the human race. He testified that he was a good person who was simply doing his part in a war against an ideology that he believes has threatened the very core of Western civilization. He said there was nothing personal about the killings. that They were just necessary to gain the attention of the civilized world. It was his goal to behead the former prime minister of his country and post the video on the internet to get people's attention. Breivik was simply training for war, and war was impersonal and strategic for him. That day, the day he did the deed, was his war on everyone else, and no one was with him. It was a one-man war against humanity. He methodically gunned down 69 people on July 22nd of last year, and he isn't bothered at all by the crime today. Men, women, and children died that day. He testified that he had chosen a self-preservation technique and training that removed all empathy from him so he could do it. And when the empathy was gone, he was ready to go to war. He had become a killing machine in Norway. What a contrast to a dog who took his place in the street last week to guard the body of a fallen friend. Dear heart, nothing but the selfish heart of man lives unto itself. There is no blade of grass. There is no animal of the field that doesn't give to receive life, but the heart of man has been affected by that primordial sin that has created an awful state of ugliness and selfishness in the human psyche. Dear heart, Jesus came to this world to save us from that kind of a road. Christ came to teach us how to love, and love is the greatest teaching of the apostolic witness that must be part of our life in the church. Jesus' appeal to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation is a call to love. It is a timeless call to love that started in the apostolic era and it comes all the way down the ages to you and me today. We sometimes sing onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. And we forget that the war is a call to love. We don't fight the enemy with the enemy's weapons in the Christian church. As Christians, we win the war when love wins in the end. Jesus' seven letters in the book of Revelation to the seven churches of Asia Minor address attitudes that affect the church in every age to the end of time. In fact, the seven churches represent seven attitude epics that reach from apostolic days through the Middle Ages to the very end of time. The letters are symbolic of the seven epics of Christian history, but they also describe conditions in churches throughout history, so you can't just put them into historical slots. They also represent attitudes in a particular congregation here or there through history. They were relevant in time. They were relevant in John's time, but they are also prophetic of time. Now, the first church is the church of Ephesus, and it represents the attitude of militant service without love. I'll repeat it. Militant service without love. I mean, you've been in a church like that, and I have too. We talk about what we do. We talk about the importance to get the work done of service, and somehow love for others is gone in the mix. Those who need to be are excluded by the superhero Christian who serves so well that the sinner who needs the association of saints feels blocked out. It's not the kind of church I want to belong to, and maybe it's not the kind of church you want to belong to. 
The church at Ephesus had started out right. It had the Apostle Paul in its origin. It had John as a pastor, the beloved disciple of Jesus. I mean, it had good origins, but it went wrong because in its militant service, it had forgotten that love must be at the heart of what is done. The church of Ephesus was the congregation that John pastored in Asia Minor. It's the first on the list here in the seven churches, more than any other church in the ancient world. That church was set up to believe in Jesus and to love because it had apostolic witness off the charts. And what did John tell the church? 1 John 4, 7 and 8. He said, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I mean, if you want a definition of of God, it's not some prime mover. It's not some awesomely powerful being who controls quantum reality. And we can all sound smart. I mean, if you really want to know what God is, the Bible's clear. God is love. God is what really love is. God is love. And he puts meat on what it means to love. Look at 1 John 4.20. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now that's a pretty awesome definition. That means God doesn't hate anyone. That God loves the sinner. He loves the unrighteous. He causes his reign to fall on those who will not turn to him. He is patient and long-suffering until there is no way to bring them back. He will endure whatever it takes to love the lost and woo them home. Verse 21, and this commandment we have from him. It didn't come from us. It didn't come from smart people figuring out. It came from God through Jesus. This commandment we have from him that he who loves God should do what? What does the text say? Should love his brother also. The seven church epics begin with the church of Ephesus and a call to love. Revelation 2.1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I mean, now this letter begins with a description of who Jesus is. It takes that part of the vision we saw in Revelation 1 that applies to Christ, this apocalyptic vision of all that Jesus is, and it pulls out the components that apply to the church of Ephesus. Now, notice what it doesn't do. It doesn't start with advice for the church. It doesn't start with encouragement or admonition either. Friends, it starts with Jesus. And that's not a point we should quickly move over. The letter starts with Jesus. When your Christian experience is in trouble, you need to start with Jesus. And that's where it should begin. Who Jesus is must meet the need in your life before you figure out what you should do, before you hear what's wrong. You need to look at Jesus to behold the Lamb of God, to see Him high and lifted up. Trying hard will not take the place of looking unto Jesus. And so the letter begins with a picture of Jesus. The text says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now right up front, Jesus makes it clear that it's not John who's speaking. That even though John's the prophet who's writing this down, it's not John. It says the words of the letter are the words of Jesus Christ for his people. The one who holds the stars is the one who speaks He has the words, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. I mean, John is just sharing and passing on what Jesus Christ himself has to say. And there are times when preachers preach too long. I know this to be true. I've done it. Boy, I heard an amen out there. Someone say amen, didn't they? Yeah, someone said amen. That's all right. You can say amen. 
You know, I believe in Christian tolerance, unless you say that twice. Just kidding. Now, there are times when preachers preach the Word of God and people think it's the preachers talking. And, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, preacher, you did a good job. But, you know, that's not how it is. They do not understand that when someone shares the Scriptures in the right way, when the truth comes from God's Word to you in your heart, that it is actually God who is speaking through the Word of God. It is the testimony of Jesus, not the preacher. And we should discern the difference. The words of the seven letters are Jesus' words, not mine. So take what Jesus says to your heart. Now two truths are manifest in the picture of Jesus in the introduction to the letter of Ephesus. The first truth is this, Jesus holds the seven stars, which are described in Revelation 1.20 as the ministers and messengers of the seven churches. Now, have you ever had an out-of-control life where nothing goes right? I've had a week like that, and I'm going to talk about it at the end of my sermon a little bit. I had an IT nightmare. Matt, I should have called you earlier. An IT nightmare trying to figure out how to get some computer component to work, and my whole week was unraveled, sleepless nights over it. You never had a week like that, have you? Oh, some of you have. I live where you live. The rest of you, I don't know where you're coming from. All right, now Jesus holds the seven stars in his hands. Right up front, Christ makes it clear that he is in control of the church. I mean, there's no room to be a control freak in the church. And I've seen them, you have too. People who feel like they just got to make their point of view become the choice that the church must choose. And if they don't do it, then somehow the work of God will collapse because it's not Christ who's in control of the church. They have to be in control of the church. Friends, no one can snatch the stars out of Jesus' hands. Christ directs His workers to serve and to share the Word of God. And when they preach the Word, it's His Word, not theirs. It doesn't matter how bad it looks in the church. If that church is in the process of reaching out, if God's presence is there, you can endure a bad preacher from time to time. You can have a bad leader from time to time. Something can go wrong. But God will not let that church slip from His hands. Christ is the real hero and sustainer of the church. That's the first thing we see. Now, the second truth follows the first. Jesus walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands in Revelation 120 represent the seven churches. And Jesus is here pictured walking within his church, personally connected to each church member. In Scripture, the number seven means the whole of something. The seven days of creation means the whole of creation, the entire creation. So seven represents completeness here. The seven churches represent the universal church in John's day. I mean, those seven churches in Asia Minor were a picture of all churches. And they also represent his church throughout time, from apostolic days to the end of time. In this vision, Jesus is not on the outside of the church. Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. Now let me ask you this question. How important is it that Jesus come to church? We, our greeters were out there greeting. Isn't it important to greet Jesus and bring Him to church? I believe it is, isn't it? We find in the book of Revelation that Christ is walking in the midst of the seven lampstands. Now, if you choose to stay away from church, who's in church according to this verse? Jesus is. Who will miss you that Sabbath? Jesus will. He walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. He walks among them as one in them, and to each lampstand he ministers so its light will not go out. 
So right up front, the letter with the words of Jesus starts with two vital truths. Number one, Christ is in control of his church. And number two, he is personally ministering within his church. Now some people say, well, you know, I don't go to church because I can't get my needs met. I go there and no one ministers to me. Now, let's assume that everybody in the church is inept at ministering, right? That no one is good at really reaching out to you. If Jesus comes to church, can Christ minister to you in the church? Yes or no? There is simply no place for that kind of assumption. We'll continue with today's Reaching Your Heart and Pastor Michael Oxentenko in just a moment. If you'd like to attend the worship service, I will have details on how you can do that here at the close of our broadcast today, so please stay tuned. You can always attend online at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Many archived messages are available there for you, and you can attend the live service in a streaming format at that website, reachinghearts.org slash video. Let's continue now with Pastor Michael Oxentenko in today's Reaching Your Heart. Friend, you need to be here because Christ is here. With power and caring, Christ will not let the light go out in your life. He holds the seven stars if you are in His presence. These two truths teach us that we are not the ones in control of the church. The war is not your war to win for God. Whatever cause you care about, God doesn't need you to bully it through to make it happen. The war is not decisively determined by how militant or brilliant you are as a Christian. In the church that is really healthy, Christ is the hero. Christ is the presence. He walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. And He is the source of victory. He is the reason for gathering. After Jesus establishes who he is, because you've got to figure out who Jesus is before you can figure out what he's saying. After Jesus establishes who he is for the church of Ephesus, he commends his church for defending the truth. Revelation 2, verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not, and found them to be false. And I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now this idea that Christian love sets aside Bible standards and truth is very prominent in the world today in which we live. I mean, many people are saying, well, you know, to have love, we just got to diminish what the Bible says about this and that, and forget about the Ten Commandments, forget about quality Christian living in terms of staying away from immorality. It doesn't matter what you watch and so on. I mean, this is the mush that comes from the Christian pulpit today. In many places in the world, it's incompatible with Christ. We find here that, that Jesus does not say, hey, quit doing this. He affirms them for standing true to principle, for drawing a line in the sand and saying the world doesn't come into the church. It's okay. Christ is not an advocate for compromise in the, in the church of Ephesus. Jesus is not a proponent of an ecumenicism here that sets aside the gospel, the law of God, and Christian teaching, and the apostolic witness of the New Testament to have warm fuzzies in a congregation where music takes the place of the Word of God. Whenever there is a challenge to the truth, I have found that Satan raises up someone to claim that the Lord told him or her something that everyone else must do. And they say this in place of the Word of God. I mean, the Christian culture today is subjective, not objective. It's not based on what God has said. It's to a large extent based on feeling and what we want to happen and what we sense will be. 
No, friend, if you claim that kind of thing, if you claim to be a pipeline from God that can speak for everyone else, and that it was channeled to you from the Lord, you had better be a prophet or an apostle to make a claim like that, because if you're not, you're a liar. Did you hear me? And you're a deceiver inside the church, the worst kind of deceiver. And they had them right there at Ephesus. I hear it a lot today, and I cringe when I hear it. The Holy Spirit told me. Now, I know the Holy Spirit impresses me. How many of you feel like the Holy Spirit impresses you? Raise your hand. Good. But when you move to that kind of a statement, the Holy Spirit told me. And, of course, the message is clear that the Holy Spirit speaks to you as if he doesn't speak to others in the same way. You have just entered the plane of the prophets and the apostles. If the Holy Spirit has told you something and you sense the impression, get on your knees and pull out your Bible and share it from the Bible, but don't allow your own experience to take the place of the Word of God in sharing with someone else. Leave the Holy Spirit to be that force which impresses them. You use the Word of God. God's Word in the Bible is the test of every spirit. It is the way we can interact with truth and know what is true. The Bible should be lifted up as the standard. In John's day, there were people who claimed to be apostles when they were actually deceivers in the church. We know who they are to a large extent because of archaeological discovery. Here are some books that, they, that they've dug up that we know were false apostolic writings. The Apocryphon of John. The Gospel According to Philip. The Gospel According to Mary Magdalene. Now in the Gospel According to Philip, I don't want to, well, I won't talk about what's in that Gospel. It's not good. The Pearl of Great Price. The Gospel According to Thomas. And even, now hear this, the Gospel According to Judas. As if Judas had something good to say about Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 2, Paul warned believers to ignore any letter that claimed to be from him that said the day of the Lord has already come. So there were false apostles out there writing stuff that was not given by God. The Holy Spirit told me and then they signed an apostle's name. Now the Gnostics, and that's what they were, we know historically that we've identified this group as proto-Gnostics or Gnostics. The Gnostics taught that Jesus comes inside our hearts and that we are illumined when we have this inner knowledge of God's Spirit, which makes us a little bit like God too, we discover the God inside of us, and at that moment we are saved from the evil world because we have escaped from the world of matter into the world of the Spirit. And by that escape, we are saved. And so salvation was inner knowledge and enlightenment, not Jesus dying on a cross for your sins. And the Gnostics can be understood as a single movement that threatened the apostolic faith and the core teaching that Jesus died for our sins. Objective truth, objective atonement, something that stands outside of us, for us, that we need, that can indeed affect us on the inside. But whether we feel it or not, it is there. It is good news, the gospel. Friends, the gospel is an external salvation first, worked out in the body of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. That's why he said it is finished. And they rejected the teaching that God's truth is outside and it comes to us on the inside only from God through Jesus. God's truth is in Jesus and his word. And they hated the idea that they couldn't add to it. That they, they felt they were so smart they could somehow add to it with philosophy or through visions and dreams and other things. And they lost the sense that the word of God is all sufficient. Now the Gnostics made themselves little gods equal to Jesus because they claimed that God's light was in them just like Jesus. Let me ask you this question. 
If you felt like God was in you and you were a little bit of God, wouldn't that be a good feeling? Sure it would, right? Wouldn't it kind of prop up a poor self-esteem? You could say, hey, I'm a little bit like God. Many years ago, there was a New Age revival in this country, and Shirley MacLaine, an actress, was one of the leading proponents of that New Age reemergence in Western civilization and culture. And, and she was actually, I think it was either in a film or something. I read this in a book. She was walking along a beach when she had her great Eureka, reached out to heaven, put her arms out, and said, I am God. As if this was the great illumination. Now imagine how God felt looking way down from heaven at that little lady like a sand on a beach saying, I am God. It must have been pretty ridiculous. You know, the Lord loves her. He loves everyone who makes a claim like that. But that's what they were doing. This was the movement that tried to overcome the early Christian church. The Gnostics made themselves little gods equal to Jesus because they claimed that God's light was in them even before they were born. And if they discovered this light, then they discovered the deity within them. There are a lot of people today saying the same thing in the church. Paul warned the church of Ephesus that wolves would come in and steal the sheep away. And that's exactly what happened in the first century. I mean, when you buy into something like this, pride sets in and you become the sum of your own religion. Now, Paul is leaving the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 28. And notice what he told them. Take your Bibles and turn there. He said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained, how? How does he say? With the blood of his own son. We'll continue next time with the Church of Ephesus and the Call to Love. Today's Reaching Your Heart. You can find it online at reachingyourheart.com. That's reachingyourheart.com. And if you would like to attend in person at the church, we would love for you to do that. That address is 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. Or if you're more comfortable, you're certainly welcome to watch online at reachinghearts.org slash video. reachinghearts.org slash video. The live broadcast will be streaming and available for you on that website, reachinghearts.org slash video. Thanks for listening, and we do pray that God is reaching your heart.